Welcome to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church, in modern times, and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Janet Smith. Janet E. Smith is the Father Michael McGivney Chair of Life Ethics at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. She taught at the University of Notre Dame for nine years and the University of Dallas for 12. She is the author of Humana Vitae, A Generation Later, and A Right to Privacy. Self-Gift is a volume of her already published essays on Humana Vitae and the thought of John Paul II. She edited Why Humana Vitae is Right, a reader, life issues, medical choices, living the truth in love, pastoral approaches to same-sex attractions, and why Humana Vitae is still right. Professor Smith served three terms as a consultor to the Pontifical Council on the Family and also served as a member of the Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission for eight years. More than 2 million copies of her talk, Contraception Why Not, have been distributed. Thank you so much for being with us today, Janet. It's good to be here. Thank you. So your work has had a heavy focus on sexuality from a Catholic perspective, including issues of natural family planning, contraception, homosexuality, and life issues. Often leaning on Humana Vitae, which is the encyclical letter of Pope Paul VI from 1968, why is Humana Vitae so relevant to your work, and how is it still relevant today? Well, it's a long story, but my degree is actually in classical languages, all right? I wrote a PhD dissertation on Plato, so you might ask, how did I ever get interested in sexual ethics material? And it really, I won't tell you the whole long story, but it had to do with my getting very involved in the pro-life movement at one point, and trying to figure out why so many women were having abortions. And I had grown up in a family where babies were um, wonderfully welcome. And the idea of being able to have a baby and to be a mother was a very beautiful vision. And I was graduated from high school in 1968 and was uh, perplexed by feminism, perplexed by feminism that seemed to think that motherhood was kind of a second-rate calling in this world, whereas my own mother had been so profoundly happy being a, a mother. And so I put these two things together and trying to see what where we got this hostility to pregnancy and, and motherhood. And I did a lot of counseling outside of abortion clinics. It just becomes perfectly clear that they were having sex with men with whom they were not prepared to have a baby. And I'd always been a responsible little person and was trying to figure out why would someone have sex with someone with whom they weren't prepared to have a baby when Pregnancy is obviously a very natural outcome of sexual intercourse. And actually, I talked to one of my friends in college who was having sex with maybe the handsomest guy on campus. And I just asked her, though, it was a little, probably a little jealous, but I asked her, I said, what, what are you going to do if you get pregnant? And she said, I don't know him well enough to ask. And mm. things kind of, you know, cobbled together in my mind to make me think I really needed to take a look at Humani Vitae. I had left the Catholic Church for a short period of time, come back. Now I was, at this point, I'm in graduate school. I'm meeting a lot of other young people who have become enthusiastic Catholics. This is in the 70s. And we decided we we were all in graduate school. and We felt that we'd been given certain intellectual gifts and that we needed to put these intellectual gifts at service of the church. And this is when there was all questions of everything, uh, women, priests, contraception, everything. 
office. We read the documents of Vatican II. We read Humanae Vitae. We had a Bible reading group. And in reading Humanae Vitae, we discovered we thought it was brilliant and that it had a view of, of human relationships and sexuality that fit human nature. And then I saw more of my friends getting married. And really, the ones who were living chaste lives before marriage and using natural family planning within marriage seemed to have such deeper and more solid uh, relationships than those who had lived together before marriage and contracepted within marriage. So I just began to see that it was a kind of a secret, fidelity to, to Jesus's church, fidelity to him and the, the teachings that he conveys to us through his church. You know, human life is difficult. Relationships are difficult. It doesn't take away the difficulty, but it gives us a way of dealing with it and becoming deeper and more faithful living through these teachings. And then, of course, over 50 years time, just seeing that this integration of the culture has been uh, dizzying, I might say. I never thought uh, we would see such a thing as same-sex marriages and transgenderism. Mm-hmm. All these things can be traced back to our uh, incredible embrace of contraception, which meant an embrace of sex without meaning. And that's what we now have. And I think it's funny to think of the late 60s, early 70s, the vision of this group of young people getting together and reading Humana Vitae and thinking this is brilliant because I think we kind of have this perspective of this free love time in our society where there was a major rejection of what Pope Paul VI had put out in Humana Vitae. And especially as you were talking about the disintegration of society and all of the warnings that he had put at the end of that, I think people really thought were loony, you know, just off the charts. He had no idea what he was talking about. And it really was a matter of time to see how prophetic that really was. Yes, that's right. I mean, it, yeah, exactly right. I mean, I my generation was the free love generation. It's like when I was when I speak to young people, I always want to apologize for my generation, say, you know, we <laughs> that introduced the madness into our culture that they're now suffering from. Uh, I, I never want to blame young people for the the craziness that's out there because they're just inheriting what we gave them. My generation was the one that really broke with the wisdom of their parents. You know, we had the statement that you couldn't trust anyone over thirty. And so we wanted to rewrite everything. And, and, you know, sexual liberation was so much a part of it. But my group had, again, we were very unusual. We had, for various reasons, and mostly because of an intellectual truth that the church had become Catholic or more profound Catholics. There were what I call reverts, those who came back to the faith. There were mm-hmm. those who had always been faithful. There were converts. And we were totally uh, a group of, that perplexed everybody around us because we were living in a very sexual liberation culture, and they couldn't understand all these young Catholics that were now all enthusiastic about it. But it was very satisfying uh, to our minds and to ourselves. It gave us a you know, a vision that allowed us to make more sensible choices uh, than our culture was making. And then you talk about Pope Paul VI's predictions. And the fact is, he he only predicted so far. He, No one in 1968 uh, saw what is here now in 2019. No one saw same-sex marriages coming. No one saw transgenderism. No one. So he could predict, but he could only predict so far. He didn't even predict the increase of homosexuality or the acceptance of homosexuality. Right. And this prevalence of gender confusion is really what it's 
being known as because it seems like so many people are very confused, not sure what gender they belong to, as well as uh, same-sex attraction and homosexuality. They've become so pervasive and widely accepted in our culture that many Catholics even find it hard to combat even with truth. What is the defining problem with homosexuality and gender confusion? And why do you think it has become an encouraged avenue for youth to experiment with? Well, I would say ultimately the problem is that we don't recognize we live in God's universe. Right? You read in Genesis, God made things and said, pronounced them, it's good. It is good that the way things are the way that they are. We also live in a fallen universe. We live in a universe that rejected God and his plans. And that's, uh, we're seeing the consequences of that rejection writ very, very large at the moment. To say that the femininity and masculinity, maleness and femaleness is a very good thing. That's very clear from the beginning of scripture. This is a very good thing. Go forth and multiply and fill the earth. And so that seeing that our sexual identity, which is our biological sex, is a very good thing. It's something that we don't believe anymore. We don't believe that God made this universe. And we believe that we should have as many options as we possibly can have. That, you know, now we're changing our sex. Some people want to change their race. You can't go very far changing your height, for instance. But <laughs> people want to become whatever they want to become. And I say, you know, we don't, we don't do well with a lot of options. I mean, suppose that the deepest desire of my heart was to play in the you know National Basketball League. Um, that would be insane. I have no I have no possibility of that. And the fact that I don't even have to think about it is a liberating thing. It's like one thing I don't have to think about, should I be doing that? Can I do that? And so learning to live within limits is a very good thing. Uh, one of the great problems, I, again, just in life, I find, is there's so many choices. You go to the, any store and you can buy, you know, 200 shower curtains. And then I stand there and I look at them and I can't find one I like. I say, <laughs> there's something wrong with that. We can't just sort of live with limitations. And if you allow yourself this idea that you can change your sex, oh, my gosh, that just changes everything. And you can't do it. You can't change your sex. Every cell of your body is a certain sex. That never can be changed. You can have surgery done and take hormones, but you are still very fundamentally a given sex that you received. You can't change it. And there's this huge violation to your person by doing that. And those who want to do it, it's very clear that they're, and they admit it themselves, they're very disturbed. They're disturbed in many different ways. And so, and now we're allowing this. We're sort of, you know, we're creating that confusion for people who never had it. Something like increase of people of body dysphoria now is something like 4,000% in the last couple of years. It's leaped up. Hmm. Well, why is that? It's because you're suggesting to people, young people, and we all, you know, everybody has problems. A lot of the basis of what's going on here is that they're profoundly unhappy with something in their life. They want to get out of that life. And the way to get out of that life, they say, well, then maybe I do better as a man or maybe I do better as a woman. Now, I'm a woman that has a lot of so-called male interests, not all male interests, I'll tell you. I mean, I, I can't stand things like contact sports. It's, it's one of those things that just please don't touch me. Don't knock me over. You know, but there's just certain things, a way of arguing and a certain things of going after things that most people say. It's kind of a, a male approach to things. But the world allows that, all right? The world allows an amazing amount of diversity within 
different sexes. There are men who are very tender and men who are very capable of doing great decoration and all sorts of things. And there's women who are capable of being generals in the army. Certain male and female characteristics can certainly be possessed by people who are biologically the opposite sex, but it doesn't mean you have to change sexes. Right? It's mm-hmm. part of who you are. I mean, individual particularity is fantastic. Sometimes I tell people, there's one of our the neighborhood girls, very pretty girl, but I don't know that she ever wore a skirt after she was about seven, you know, and very tomboyish, not homosexual, not a lesbian, but very tomboyish in everything she did. And still to this day, everything she does, very adventurous and a wonderful man who wanted a woman that would share all those interests with him, married her. She's had children. But you would say, where are her feminine interests? <laughs> it doesn't matter. She's living the life that, that is her temperament, her personality, her desires. But she didn't have to change her sex to do so. Right. And I think we see a lot of the brokenness. I mean, there's so much woundedness, and especially with the youth and coming into adulthood. And I think that is where some of that confusion obviously comes from. Like you said, thinking, well, maybe I do better in this other gender or um, this other role. And perhaps that comes from feeling like you're not enough as your own gender. Uh, Like you said, with this woman as an example, maybe I'm not feminine enough or masculine enough. Ergo, I am meant to be a female or a male. But of course, we know that we can't say that this is any kind of psychological issue. We can't talk about that in our society openly without being told that we're being judgmental and not compassionate and not having empathy for this other person's happiness, or what if this other person truly was born into the wrong body or truly feels that they are male or female when they weren't born that way? There was obviously some mistake of nature, and who are we to keep them trapped in the wrong body, ultimately? Yes, that's what, that is what people say, but they've also discovered that uh, 10, 15 years later, People who go through the whole procedure of change aren't any happier. Their incidence of desiring suicide, etc., very much the same as it was before. They have a temporary relief, uh, thinking that they've solved their problems and they have a new, exciting possibility of relating to the world as uh, a different sex. But in the long run, it doesn't work. Yes, you just can't do it. And so the thing is to to dig down deep and figure out what is the source of that unhappiness um, with your own gender. What is it makes you think that you were a man born in a female's body? What is it that you want to do that you can't do now in the sex that you are? And mm-hmm. uh, th- those are the things that need need to be probed. And I, I find it particularly painful in our world, which I think has had this uh, really healthy development, that there's almost no career or possibility that's closed to either sex, right? Again, a woman can be a general in an army and a man is a top fashion designer, whatever, all those things can happen, and you don't have to change your gender to do that. There's a rare female on the face of the earth. It's very rare, the number of women who don't want to be mothers, all right? Mm-hmm. And those who go through these sex change operations are precluding that possibility for themselves. We hear these stories now of couples, transgender woman getting married to a transgender male, and they want to have a baby. So the transgender male now stops taking the hormones and everything and still has the child for a period of time by not taking the hormones. And they think, oh, they're some so confused here. 
um, you know, especially when you do it through prepubescent kids who start on the hormone mm-hmm. treatment, they will they will always be sterile. They'll never be able to have children. And who can make that decision at five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven years of age? There was a documentary on um, Frontline. They were talking to all these prepubescent kids about going through the sex change operations, and you know they were all obviously coached because they were unrealistically articulate for children that age. But, you know, all being able to say, well, yes, I've thought about it. I've, you know, yes, I would have always wanted to be a, a mother, but this is much more important to me. And I've decided I can, I can give that up for this. Nobody can do that. And to think about how deep that is in people's psyche is this desire to be a father and to be a mother. Hmm. And, and you can do that. A woman can do that who's a general. She can do that if she's a lumberjack. She can do that if she's an engineer. It's not a conflict with that. And what we basically need to be a good mother and a good father, again, is written into our nature. It doesn't come automatically, but we can cultivate that and you know, nurture that in ourselves as we, we become parents. And that's one thing I think that we need to really cultivate in young people is the joy of being a parent. Uh, right. And- yes, that is just not present. I feel like especially being a mother, you know, since, like you said, the 60s and 70s on, there's been such an attack culturally on motherhood and especially the stay-at-home mother that she is just either incapable of doing anything outside of the home or that she has all these gifts and talents that she's just throwing away by staying at home. And I think that you hit the nail on the head with the fact that we need to work hard to elevate that again to what it was before to a respectable choice that these women are choosing to be mothers. And I think our culture, you know, with Planned Parenthood being such a loud voice and feminists for abortion rights being so loud in our culture, we get this idea that motherhood is something that either accidentally happens or is forced upon you, you know, and it's really this prison, this institution, this thing that happens so unwanted and if you choose to subscribe to that, you're really choosing the lesser path. And I think you're right when you said we need to really change that mentality. Just, I remember so much from my youth. My mother just so much loved being a mother and she conveyed that to us. We just knew that we were what made her life so wonderful. And my father, the same too. He enjoyed his job to some extent. He had a good job. He did well. But he really did not want to put any extra hours into work because it would take away from family time. And he would mm. work. And the first thing he'd want to do is find a kid that would go out and play catch with him in the, in the road or read books to us. He couldn't stand to have us go to summer camp. He would say, why would you send your kids to summer camp? He said, you're going to miss them for a week. I mean, that was so proud, you know, that this is how much they loved us. They didn't have a lot of money when we were little. We had no money to shower anything on us. I mean, they weren't helicopter parents or they weren't lavish parents. What they wanted to do was just spend time with us and just enjoy us. And I think, again, people now are so set on success in their careers and it being out of the home and doing things. And I'm not married. I don't have children. I'm blessed with having siblings who have children, as friends who have children. I'm part of a lot of families' lives. I mean, I'm a consecrated virgin, and I experience that spousal and parental life in a different way that the church cultivates. But the whole notion that it's just a spectacular thing to be a mother and a father, and that should never take a secondary priority 
to what one is doing with one's life. And I think of all these people who work and come home at night and they're so tired and they don't have much time and energy to put into family, both the man and the woman. My dad never worked more than 38 and a half hours a week. He managed to take a a little bit of time every week to go golfing or something, but he never went in on weekends, never went in in the evenings. And he says, I can't get it done during the daytime. I want another job. And, you know, not everybody's going to be that way. But that attitude, that attitude that I do not want to miss out on my children's growing up. Right. Parents have to convey that to their children and not let their children think that they are a drain on their energies and, and something that's holding them back for the things that they really want to do in their life. The children have to be what they really want to do. That is an excellent point. And I think something that just needs to be, as parents need to hear that over again, because we believe it, but sometimes we don't always show it. And I think that action is important. And I am a big fan of your chapter in the Catholic Woman from the Weatherfield Institute Proceedings in 1990. Your chapter, Feminism, Motherhood, and the Church, speaks to the heart of my ministry. In it, you tackle head-on the disdain and incompatibility that motherhood has taken from many of the leading feminists. It seems that this rejection of the natural state of conceiving and bearing children and the desire of removing this process, or as many would say burden, from the female altogether, is in fact a hatred of women's own nature. So can you speak further on that? I thought it was so brilliant when you said that it shows a certain hatred towards the nature of a woman to want to remove her own fertility or to remove the process of bearing a child and, you know, having a child conceived rather in a laboratory so that she's not burdened with the changes that occur to her body or maybe a burden of illness throughout that period of time or uh, taking away from her work out of the home all of the many reasons that it would be more convenient for her to have her child conceived and born outside of her own body. Yes. Well, this is a place where, in odd ways, the world, and I think what are we now in third wave feminism? I'm not exactly certain which wave yes. we're in now. But, <laughs> maybe uh, fourth. I don't know. Maybe fourth. But there is a huge movement now in the, in, among secular feminists who are really finding contraception to be uh, poisonous, and it is literally poisonous uh, to a woman's body. Yes. They are really realizing um, what it does physically to them. In publishing all sorts of things, Ricky Lake is making a movie about the harms of contraception. Every day, something in, comes into my news feed, almost every day, with news stories about the harms of contraception. If I would say the biggest harm is treating our fertility as though it were some sort of defect in our system. Treating that, but though is that God has designed us badly, all right, that our fertility is, it's, it's bad to be as fertile as we are, and it gets in the way of things, as opposed to saying, no, it's like those many limits that God has given us, and, and actually a gift. He's given us fertility as a gift. The ability to have children is such an enormous gift. Anybody who's had a child, it changes their life, you know, 180 almost. So much of your life has been, you know, me directed till at that point. And it's almost that moment I w- had the great grace to be in the, the delivery room when one of my friends delivered her sixth child. And that having that sense that when that baby is born, almost everybody in the room, there was a midwife and myself and the husband and the wife. And uh, you sort of dedicate yourself to this child in a way, uh, the parents more than anybody else. But sort of like you're here now. And I brought you into existence, and now I need to make this world a good place for you, and I need to dedicate myself to 
seeing that you have a chance to actualize everything that you were meant to be in this world. And you lay down your life for this child. You lay down your life. You now live for that child. And that's a beautiful thing. Uh, it's a beautiful thing to take us outside of ourselves and allow us in a very natural way to just love someone beyond the way that you can possibly imagine you could have loved anyone. And so our fertility opens us up to that kind of self-giving, which is can profoundly satisfying. People will say, you know, well, before I had a child, I might have wanted to, this may regret that I can't do this, but oh, I wouldn't change it for anything. Uh, if it had to be my child or a career being, you know, underwater or botanist or something, you know, okay, it's not a choice. It's very clear that the child is so much more important. And those other things can be done, sometimes simultaneously, sometimes later, sometimes you lose interest, but the child should have priority. So it's strange in a world in which we, you know, now we're so protective of the environment and we tend to think that, you know, you need so many species of everything, and if some species dies out, the whole is endangered, which is true. But why we don't treat our bodies is that same sort of fantastic ecological system where every part makes a contribution to the whole. And why we would treat something fundamental to our being, such as our fertility, as though it were an enemy. And, you know, throwing all these chemicals at it and devices and everything as opposed to saying, no, 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 <laughs> this is a good, healthy thing. And in my relationships, I mean, women have found that when men come to understand a woman's fertility and respect a woman's fertility, he respects her so much more. I mean, she's not just a sex object. She is what? She is a potential mother. She's a right. potential mother to his children. All right. So now all of a sudden he looks at her very differently. How should I be treating a potential mother of my children? Whoa, all right? These would be my children. I need to respect this woman. I need to find a woman who would be a good mother. I need to be a good man to win a woman who will be a good mother. So I better, you know, clean up my act if I want to get this woman that I believe will be a good mother to our children. And it changes the sexual dynamic completely. It doesn't mean that he's not going to be profoundly sexually attracted to her and she to him. You know, that's chemistry. That that just comes with the it comes with our bodies. We're not all profoundly attracted to everybody, but it's very possible that you will find and highly likely you will find someone you're very sexually attracted to who will also be a good mother and a good father. And that's the fact mm -hmm. you want, uh, because that will put everything in the right place. And in my ministry, years of ministry working with young people, it's funny when I talk to young men who are dating young women and I ask them about their future interest in this woman and they kind of define women as women they would marry or wouldn't marry. For instance, if a young man is dating a woman and I would say something like, well, do you think that this is the one? They have this immediate reaction like, oh no, like I would never marry this woman or I would never want this woman to be the mother of my children, but you know, I'm just kind of having fun or killing time or whatever, as opposed to there's this profound change when they say, yes, I would marry this woman. I would lay my life down for this woman. I would want this woman to be the mother of my children. And it's almost immediate. You know, it's so funny how many young men I had asked, so are you going to marry this woman? Are you interested? And there's this immediate, oh no, I would never marry her. Or I would never want her to mother my children. It's very clear. Every girl needs to hear that. Every girl needs to hear that because, and, and some women don't understand how profoundly romantic and what can I say committed 
men can be that when they meet the right one, when they meet the right one, they want her and only her. And they really are willing to lay down their lives for her. And other than that, they're just messing around. And women have to be attentive to that. This guy is just messing around because if he wants her, he's going to be willing to slay dragons for her. All right. Right. And, and one of those dragons he's going to have to slay is his desire for sex before marriage. And if he's willing to, to give up on that and say, no, I want you so much, I'm going to make a lifetime commitment to you and I'm going to refrain from pushing for sexual intercourse before marriage, he's the one, right? He's very possibly the one. But I think you're absolutely right about asking men that question. I, I remember someone doing exactly that kind of survey. And she, this guy was on like his third live-in. And she said, he said, well, no, are you going to marry her? And he said, no, 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 no. I, you know, I'm just doing this until I get to this point in my job and this point in my job. And then I'll find the woman I want to marry. And right. saying that aloud, I don't know what you find with the young men that you talk to, but he was very embarrassed. Yes. Yes. I know one particular case of a man who was living with a woman for five years. And as soon as it was brought up, when do you plan to move it to the next step of marriage? And it was so clear that that was such a shock, you know, what do you mean? Like, that's not anywhere in the plans. And actually, it was shortly after that was brought up that he packed his bags and head out the door because there was no commitment and no plan for long-term commitment. And even when the idea was brought up, it was so fearful that he hit the ground running immediately and was out the door within a week of that, you know? So I I think women are shocked to hear those kind of things. I I don't know what they think that there's just an underlying commitment, of course, through having sex with this person, that there's there's just, you know, some kind of hold that maybe you have. But I think women are shocked to understand that men do compartmentalize a lot of times women that they would marry and women that they're just killing time with. So yeah, it's good. To, it's good to get that out there. And I, I can't even tell you how many times I've had um, random conversations, for instance, getting my hair cut or something like that. And, you know, the hairdresser will start chatting, asking me about my state in life, married with kids and things like that, how I met my husband. And then it'll go into her inevitably living with her boyfriend. And I'll start asking just general questions about that and what the plans are. And uh, my husband always jokes that I am banned from so many hairdressing places because I've broken up so many relationships (laughs) from like being in the chair for an hour is guaranteed that somebody's moving out from the live-in just from asking these you know, Socratic questions. And inevitably, the woman comes to discover that either he's not serious about her or she's not serious about him. And it's always a shock that just because they've been living together for X amount of years, he may not actually really plan to put a ring on her finger. That's always such an utter shock. Yes, I think it often is. And they don't talk about it. That's the one of the many reasons that cohabitation is a very bad idea, is that people don't talk about the relationships because they're afraid that, in fact, things might break up. And if they break up, you have to start all over again. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, well, maybe this is moving towards something. Maybe this is moving towards something, but it's not. Right. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and then with the acceptance of NFP for Couples, married couples, how do families navigate the moral conversation of welcoming children that can be properly loved and educated in preparation to merit eternal life? I know this is a big question with a lot of Catholic families who are 
totally on board with natural family planning, but it comes to a point where there's a big divide with just welcoming as many children as God gives and maybe not charting or anything like that, just being open to no matter how mentally, physically drained the parents are. And then on the other hand, um, really struggling and grappling with, you know, we only have a few children, which we've welcomed through natural family planning, but we just feel that we are kind of maxed out, you know, either there's uh, physical problems or, or mental problems, or just in general, just feeling so overwhelmed at a certain point in time. How do couples properly navigate the moral conversation there? Well, there, there certainly is the, um, you know, I just, I just got disinvited from a speaking engagement. It's never happened before oh, no. because there were a number of people, women apparently in the parish that thought that I was, um, you know, too liberal on humanity, too liberal. And mm. what they meant by this was, I think I have to have a communication with the pastor, a deeper one, but the whole question about when is it okay to limit your family size? There are a number of people out there that are called providentialists. And these people think that there's almost no good reason for limiting your family size. That either the right. life has to be near death or the family needs to be near financial ruin. Right. And I think, okay, um, it's not so much what I think versus what they think. It's what the church teaches. Exactly. And I would challenge them to find that in church teaching. Humani Vitae in section 11 has this pretty amazing line that says that those are considered to be living in accord with responsible parenthood who prudently and generously decide to have a large family. Now, that word prudently is very important there. Prudently means that you have assessed your situation and determined that another child would be a good thing for your family. All right. Now, you don't do this independently of God. You pray about it. But if you're saying, you know, another child in this mix right now would strain us to the max. Right. And, mm-hmm. the, and in the document, it says you can have physical reasons, psychological reasons, economic reasons and social reasons. Mm. So it, it provides a lot of different categories that could count. One of them being, it's interesting to me, psychological and, and, and physical as well. Physical, it never says anything like the woman needs to be near death or this would be a horrible a threat to her health and well-being. I think it means I'm so darn tired. I'm, my, <laughs> one of my, uh, what do you want to call it, criteria for people is to say something, for especially women, to say, how do I feel now about my life? Do I hate my children, hate my husband, hate my life? Right. That's not a good place, that's not a good place to be. All right. And then you say, why? Why am I in a position where I don't, I'm just not absolutely thrilled to be a mother and a wife and I love my life? What is the difference? And it might be you've got three children under five. You don't sleep well. Some women sleep well. All right. You've got whatever kinds of psychological baggage that you brought from whatever, and it makes everything difficult. And you're saying, is there something wrong with waiting for another two years before having another baby? Not totally close to having more children. You're just saying, I'm, you know, maxed out on my life right now and bringing another child into this mix, I just can't see it's going to help. Now, if that woman gets pregnant, you do have to do a a real 180 degree turn, which is saying that I will accept every child as a gift and I will ask God's graces to accept this as a gift and go forward. 
But I tell people, you know, nobody that I know at the end of the month sees how much money they've got in their bank account and gives it away. They all say, we have to plan for the future. We have to, God gave us an extra $10,000. I should not go down and give it to the Pregnancy Help Center. I will give them 10% of that, but I keep the rest for future eventualities. And I say, if we're prudent in the use of our money, why is it wrong to be prudent in our childbearing? And, you know, again, there's nothing in church documents. There's not a statement anywhere that says that people have to have as big a family as they possibly can. Nothing. In Section 11 of Mani Vitae, it also says that those who practice responsible parenthood, who, for serious reasons, decide for a determined or an undetermined length of time to postpone childbearing, right? And it says it right there. This is a responsible thing to do for people who have serious reasons. Now, the question is, what is a serious reason? I think a reason that, oh, I don't know, that, you know, you want to buy a, a better car and you want a higher model car. All right. I don't think so. You want a, a really expensive vacation. I don't think so. But those can come later in life. Those aren't good reasons right. for postponing a child. But that it's your end of your rope, sort of dealing with, mm-hmm. with what's going on, or you have a big move coming up, a new job, a new town, a new everything. And you say, I don't want to show up pregnant. Um, I don't want to show up eight months pregnant when I'm just entering into this new thing. So let's postpone a pregnancy by a couple months. So at least we can be settled. That seems prudent. Right. And the beautiful thing about the church is we are given a certain Mm -hmm. amount of freedom in our own discernment with God and our spouse. I mean, we're guided by the church, but we are given a certain amount of freedom to decide what's too much for us individually. And I think, like you said, when certain women feel like I hate my husband, I hate my children, I hate my life. And I've encountered that many times with myself and many other women who feel like that at certain points where you are just so maxed out at a certain point in time that you feel like, wow, I'm truly not happy in this moment because I am so overwhelmed. And I know that this is my vocation and that I am meant to be happy and that I you know, will again be happy, but there's certain stresses that are going on right now that need to be alleviated, or there needs to be a certain amount of time to wait, welcoming another child or to, you know, taking on more in life. And that is the discernment that is so individual to each family. But I think it's so important for us to talk about because a lot of people don't talk about it, feel like they can't talk about it in the church, feel very condemned by that providentialist mentality. And so thank you for being so candid about that and what the church says. And it's just funny how, you know, when we look at the culture, how far the divide is, because of course, abortion now with some of those same ramifications, for instance, the physical, psychological, social, economic, maybe reasons to have an abortion are so accepted to the point where you could have a hangnail and maybe a panic attack, and that's enough to warrant having an abortion. I just think with each of my four children, I'm sure that my mental state during those nine months would have been able to warrant an an abortion by means of just mental... (laughs) stress or something like that. 
But on the other flip side, we are so hard on ourselves with the conversation of welcoming children that it goes so far in the opposite extreme. Like you were saying, a woman almost needs to be near death, the family and financial ruin before there's any conversation of it being okay to wait and have a time to be prudent. So thank you for speaking so candidly about that. Yes. Janet, I just want to ask you one more question. In Mulieris Dignitatum, John Paul II said virginity and motherhood are the two particular dimensions of the fulfillment of the female personality. And as you had said previously, feminists often criticize the church in not allowing women in the priesthood and for setting up an idealized image of women as mother. Can you just speak briefly on how this virginity and motherhood goes together as the two particular dimensions of the fulfillment of the female personality? Yes, in a way, I mean, John Paul II talked too about the feminine genius, all right? And I've talked about how every woman innately will find motherhood satisfying. And there are ways in which virginity and marriage and motherhood are all a part of it. The notion of virginity as being a kind of a motherhood, again, is that you you're preserving yourself to be a wife and a mother and not giving yourself away unless it's in that kind of relationship. But since we can be in a relationship, a spousal relationship with the Lord, and we can be spiritually fruitful, the, the physical motherhood is not necessary to fulfilling the feminine nature of being ordained towards self-giving towards others. And in John Paul II's Theology of the Body, he talks about the spousal meaning of the body, that our very bodies show that we're meant to be in relationship with another and meant to be fruitful. But the Catholic Church believes that that can be done on the spiritual level as well as on the physical level. So really, there should be, as far as your psyche is concerned, the woman who is married, who is giving herself to her husband and her children, and her life is now oriented in that direction. It doesn't mean she becomes a, a doormat to anybody. She has to have all these proper sense of self and caring for herself as well as caring for others. But primarily, she knows what her priorities are, and it's not self-fulfillment. She will find her self-fulfillment through serving others. Right. The, the consecrated virgin should be the same thing. Um, virginity before marriage is very much, it's a great gift to your future children and your future spouse. That you are maintaining virginity before marriage means that you know who you're going to serve with your body. And you're going to serve your children and your husband, not men ahead of time. Same with the males. Their bodies are serving their future children and their future wife. And they should not be squandering the gift that belongs to your future children and your future spouse with anyone else. And the man who becomes a priest or a consecrated person for life, it's the same thing. Your life is not meant to be, how can I not have the most you know, self-fulfilling in the sense of I get to go on a vacation where I want to go and I don't have to consult with anybody else and I can spend my money the way I want to and I don't consult with anyone else. You know, the question always has to be, how does my life, my vacations, my money, my everything serve God and, right. and his children? Right. Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us today, Janet. 